welcome to Faithful Innovation. I'm Tina Jason. I love learning about the way God's love motivates how people serve the world. Hearing authentic personal stories deepens my understanding of how God transforms regular work and everyday encounters into acts of grace. Join me as I seek out ordinary people in cities, suburbs, small towns, and rural places who are doing extraordinary things. The goal, to inspire a wholesome expression of faith in your life, ministry, or business. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that I've been struggling with laryngitis this week. Graciously, my guest said I just sounded like I'd been hanging out in a smoky lounge, so we decided to press forward. Here we go. Today, Brian Becker joins me in a conversation about his journey of restoring the broken relationships in his family. Brian is a corporate leadership development expert, educator, and nonprofit executive. He consults with companies and nonprofits to improve their overall culture, quality, and performance. He also leads workshops, speaks at conferences, and provides leadership coaching to executives and aspiring leaders. What brought Brian to our conversation today is not his professional life. It's his own personal journey of pain, honesty, brokenness, and healing in his personal life, which led he and his son, Jeff, to co-author a book titled Tender Lions, Building the Vital Relationship Between Father and Son. In the introduction, Brian writes, I caused a great deal of pain in my family that destroyed the trust between me and my wife, my son, and my daughter. Somehow, by the grace of God, I was able to get honest, get help, and get humble. Thankfully, this led to many difficult and yet vitally important conversations that began the process of rebuilding the trust and love that was lost in our family. Through his own journey, Brian realized the vital importance of fathering. Brian says, if it were classified as a disease, fatherlessness, whether it be physical or emotional, would be an epidemic worth of attention as a national emergency. Brian's story is one of redemption and how only God can bring beauty out of ashes. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Tina. And I'm really uh, grateful that you decided to interview me today and also to highlight the important topic of father and son relationship. So thanks. As we get started, would you briefly share your faith background growing up? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't remember not believing in God. I can't remember not believing that Jesus was real in my life. I had two parents that um, had real and active faith. Um, they were active in worship. They taught me and my brother and sister the importance of devotion and prayer. Uh, they volunteered in the church and the community, and I know that that was because of their faith. Um, and so it was really an active part of my growing up. I also was raised on a farm in southern Illinois, and so being around animals and the seasons of spring and summer, so seeing that life and then growth and harvest and death and that all you know, happens year after year was a constant reminder of God's incredible creation, the brilliance, uh, innovation of how God made this world for us. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty powerful in my life as a kid. So, as I said in the introduction, what brought us to this conversation is really a journey that you've been on. And I wondered if you would share the experiences that you've had in your life that led up to writing of the book. Uh, sure. Um, Actually, there were two really sort of pivotal things that, that happened. 
One was um, as a you know, as a young dad, um, I uh, married two kids um, active in my community and my church, and and uh, so our our the, the public part of our life looked like everything was all together. Uh, the reality is, is that I was really living a double life. Um, as an adolescent, I had a, my dad who was honestly, uh, one of the most honest people I've ever met in my life, hardworking, faithful to my mom. Uh, that was sort of one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, he was a very angry man at times, short fuse and a big temper. <laughs> and I felt the effects of that. I was exposed to some highly sexual material when I was an adolescent um, that had a deep effect on me, uh, experienced the death of my sister when I was an adolescent. All this was happening at one time, kind of like a perfect storm. And I didn't realize the sort of damage and trauma that that was having on my young psyche and carried a lot of that into my adulthood. And And so I mentioned, you know, I had this life that looked really perfect, but I also had this sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing going on where I was getting deeper and deeper into partying. I traveled too much for my work. I was getting into pornography. And eventually, I I had a moral failure in my marriage. Um, I kept that a secret from my family for more than a decade. And every day, it just ate away at me. And uh, eventually, um, you mentioned in the introduction, I got honest. I got help, I got humble. Uh, I decided that I felt I needed to reveal that to my family um, as a way to be a man with integrity. And I knew that that would have a tremendously uh, difficult effect on them, and it did. Um, but I just felt that it was it was something that I needed to do, even if it put my marriage at risk. Um, uh, it's not the end of the story, thankfully. I am still married, and have a really wonderful relationship with my kids who are now adults. But there was a long period of time, several years, where it was really intense in my family. And so that the personal side of that, to, to look into the eyes of my son and know that I broke his heart is, uh, you know, an image that I will not forget. Um, I destroyed the trust and the love that was there with my, my family. Some years later, after the, the healing really was beginning to occur, occur I also have a professional sort of lightning bolt experience as well in that I worked for a foundation and we made grants to many organizations around the world that were trying to deal with some very complicated issues, uh, homelessness, hunger, domestic violence, refugees who literally, you know, running for their lives. And it was part of my job to read all of these proposals that would come to us over the course of a year, hundreds of them. And one day I was at my desk I'd probably read 25 or 30 proposals. And I don't know if this was the Holy Spirit or my intuition or what, but I stood up at my desk and I said, there are no fathers in any of these proposals. There are no dads in any in this picture at all with gangs and violence and domestic violence. And well, if there are dads, they're probably the destructive element in the picture. And then I paused and I thought, wow, when I go back in my own life, I was the destructive element in my family. Mm, wow. And so um, I, <laughs> I became a man on a mission <laughs> to read more, research more, talk to more people about the effects of fatherlessness and dysfunctional fathers. And so I have this personal experience and then the professional part of being involved with all of these organizations and just seeing one after other communities and 
families where the dads just weren't there in the way that God intended them to be. Was that revelation prior to uh, your discussion with your family, being open with your family, or did that come, was that part of the prompting? Where did that it fall? Was, it was probably uh, 10 years after I had disclosed all of this to my family, and we were actually in a much better place at that time. So when I disclosed my issues to my family, that was more than 15 years ago, Tina. And so then there was this about a three-year period of really hard work, intense prayer, discussions, counseling, et cetera, where we slowly, with difficult conversations, put, put our, our relationship back together and then jump forward a few more years where I was working with this foundation. And then that's where I had this sort of lightning bolt moment of, wow, there are all these issues are related to, you know, no fathers or poor dysfunctional relationships between father and son, father and family. And then a few years after that, Jeff and I were having more and more conversations about this father-son issue. And we said, maybe we should try to tell our story in some way. And so that's what evolved into the book. One of the chapters in the book is titled Faith Matters. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, as I see kind of two parallel lines that are so intertwined through the book is one story of redemption, restoration and redemption that comes through your story. Mm -hmm. And then another line of very practical, there's an importance of the role of fathers and how do fathers step into that relationship well. Could you talk to us about how faith impacted this mm -hmm. part of your journey? So when, um, when I finally got out of my arrogant phase, uh, prideful phase, secretive phase, and looked at myself in the mirror with really honest eyes and said, wow, this is a mess. How do you, how do you get out of this? You know, society would tell us, you know, Pharrell Williams, don't worry, be happy, <laughs> you know, happy, happy, happy. <laughs> um, uh, that's a short-term fix. It's like eating cotton candy, you know, and it just doesn't get us anywhere. And the reality is, is that my prayer life, my Bible study, my worship life, were the things that kept coming back and saying, this is not easy, but this is important. If you want to have a life that really has integrity and character and is attempting to be God-honoring as a father and a husband and now a grandfather, society is not going to take me in that direction. It was the Word of God and my prayer life, worship life, and a few really good Christian friends who surrounded me and my wife and kids that were the ones, the, the voices that were saying, stay with this, stay on this path. And daily, as I read the scriptures, things would come to the surface uh, about the importance of, um, of staying on this path. That's not, not easy, but, but, um, fulfilling. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about, just as I was thinking about getting on the, on the podcast with you, Tina, I remembered back in Genesis, you know, Jacob, for your listeners who are people of faith, they may know this story where Jacob's brothers threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. Years later, he becomes Pharaoh's most powerful right-hand person and reconnects with his brothers. And they, when they realize who he is, they're like, we are toast. He's going to kill us. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. He said, you intended this for harm, but God intended this for good to accomplish what's now being done. And I look back at my own life my angry father, the death of my sister, my involvement with lust and 
moral failure and why I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I now look back on that and say, because we dealt with that massive problem in a healthy way, I now actually have a sense of gratitude about even those really hard things because I wouldn't be married to my wife for 35 years and have a, a healthy relationship with her, my kids. Jeff and I never would have approached this book and and this opportunity now to make a difference and an impact for fathers and sons that maybe aren't where they need to be. One of the chapter titles that stood out to me was Failure is Awesome. Mm. I don't know if that's the right inflection to put on it. <laughs> As you're talking, the God you talk about is one that does not let go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, contends for us in all kinds of ways in those really difficult circumstances. As I think about God not letting go, do you talk about surrendering in the book? Why was that so important in your healing? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, and I think it's this way with other people when they have secrets in their life that are destructive, things we're afraid of, things we're embarrassed about. Maybe we've had trauma in the past. It wasn't our fault, but we still are carrying a lot of that around. And when we hold tightly to that, our ego and our pride can really, really hold us in place. And so we attach uh, shame and guilt and blame with those failures. Um, And the devil loves that. The devil loves to hold us in place. You know, he wants our life to be like Groundhog Day. Same bad stuff day after day after day, because we're no, we, we have no power in the kingdom of God when we are stuck in that really horrible place. So he wants those saboteurs that run in our head that say, oh, you're so bad, you're so sinful, you made so many mistakes. No one could ever love you if they knew the truth of your story. And that was the script that ran in my head for years. And it wasn't until, you know, John 8, the truth will set you free. It wasn't until I said out loud to some friends that I really trust in a confidential environment how far I'd steered off track that I was like, wow, I, I can talk about this. I think I can, I think I can actually get this out and talk about my failures and learn from them and heal from them. I know it's going to be hard, but it's possible. Well, what have you learned about forgiveness through the experience? Mm. So, when people are in a, have been done wrong, like my wife was incredibly angry with me and justifiably so. There's a tendency for us as, as humans to want to hold on to that, to, to get back, to have revenge on some level. And after a time, people discover, and my wife told me this several years after the fact, she said, you know, I hung on to that anger because I thought I need, I wanted to hurt you back. And she said, I realized that because you were honest and because you were getting help and getting counseling, you were getting better. But she said the unforgiveness was the one that it was holding me in place. I was the one that was being harmed by my unforgiveness. And so eventually, thank the Lord, she, she did forgive me. And that was like a dam bursting in terms of how it changed our perspective about our relationship with each other again. Forgiveness from a humanly perspective doesn't make any sense at all (laughs) because it's like, oh, I'm letting somebody off the hook for something they did against me. But when we look at it through God's eyes and through God's amazing grace that he gives us through his forgiveness, it's as if God says, hey, look, I'm going to give this to both of you as a gift and neither one of you really deserve it. And I I don't mean to make light of the hurt that people have, but God's love is so powerful. 
uh, this goes back to a question you asked just a little bit ago too, Tina. I don't think the forgiveness and the healing that happened between my wife and I and my kids and I was because we're such good people or because we have discipline or willpower. I think it, I, I believe it was otherworldly. It was truly the healing power of God through the Holy Spirit that somehow poured this into us and let this healing happen uh, in our lives and, and to be a witness to others about the importance of this. I too have been through a season of really needing to forgive, not at all in a same circumstance, very different circumstance. You talked about surrendering and holding tightly to the things. A couple things I learned in the process of forgiving is that forgiveness is really only required when a wrong has been done. By forgiving, it doesn't actually excuse the wrong, it names mm -hmm. it differently than if we just hold on to it and be revengeful. The other thing I learned is so much of it, just like your wife, was me learning to open my hands. That's mm -hmm. surrendering where God says, mm -hmm. just give it to me <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so that you can be free of all that stuff that it produces in your life. If yeah. you give it to me, and the question that surfaced for me was, and this was the faith builder in my life. Question was, Lord, can I trust you with the justice? Mm -hmm. And when I finally came to the place where I could open my hands, truly give it to God and not find it in my hands again, my faith and my perspective of God grew tremendously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're hitting on two really important things. One is, I love the way you said this. It doesn't excuse it. It names it. I think that's really important, particularly for the person that's been wrong. They're allowed to, to get to that point. Uh, there's a great quote from Anne Lamott. I think her book was called Tender Mercies, that unforgiveness is like eating uh, rat poison and expecting the other person to die, uh, which is quite a, you know, paradox there. The, the other, the other point that's so important is when, you know, uh, when your, when your fist is closed, if you look at that as unforgiveness, you can accept nothing. You can give away nothing, and it's not until we we open we open ourselves up uh, that we're allowed to give away that hurt. We're allowed to let God take that, um, and we're allowed to receive anything back that becomes healing for us. And it's transformative in all of our relationships. Mm -hmm. So your relationship with your family mm -hmm. survived, and I don't think it only survived it. It is, seems to be thriving. And as mm -hmm. I listen about the relationship with your son, also the case, what has happened that allowed the two of you to really not just get past the hurt, but really mend and restore and now redeem that experience in a way that is hopefully through this book and whatever may come as a result of it may be a blessing now to many, many others. Mm-hmm. Our family dynamics were, we, we weren't good at talking about real things. Both my wife's family and mine were people that would argue a little, and then we would shut down when difficult things happened. We just, you know, stoic German, just suck it up, you know, <laughs> just stuff it down inside. And, and so that was how my wife and I modeled how to handle problems to our kids. And so we weren't good at talking about those things. By getting honest with them about my own situation, and then, frankly, getting help through talking to people who'd been down this road before and getting some counseling, I, I learned new skills. 
you know, most of us, we're pretty good at some things in our life, but I was clueless about how some of that baggage from the past, my beliefs were actually faulty beliefs about those hurts from the past. And a faulty belief is just as powerful on us as a real belief. And so by getting help, I was able to unpack those things. And I was very transparent with my family about what I was going through. And so Jeff and I started having really good conversations when he, he was about 14 when this happened. And so he'd come home from a ball game or a concert or with friends or whatever. And I'd just make sure that I was available and said, Hey, you know, how you doing, buddy? And we started having better conversations and. If he was having challenges, we would frequently have a little bit of prayer time as he was getting ready for bed. And that just changed the way he and I saw each other. Because initially, he didn't trust me, and for good reason. And he thought that some of my conversation with him was just like, oh, well, dad's in therapy or dad's going to a recovery meeting. He's supposed to like work his program, and that means talking to me. And so he was leery about letting himself become vulnerable again in our relationship, which is completely uh, predictable. I'm going to take a veer off on the, on the, on a little bit of a tangent here, uh, Tina. When a teenage boy or an adolescent boy has a hurt like this in their life, number one, they, they get angry. Number two, they're afraid and they don't want to say that they're afraid. And then they isolate. They're not going to go to school the next day and say, Hey, guess what, guys? My parents are having this enormous storm going on right now. So those three things, being angry, being afraid, and being isolated, is a, a recipe for problem with an adolescent, particularly when they're active and if they're risk takers, they can get involved in all kinds of things, drugs and gangs and, and who knows what. So our conversations really helped to rebuild the trust that was there and we had to start from ground zero and that took a long time, but we just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And I was very intentional about trying to spend more time with both of my kids and obviously with my wife in real conversation. I'm thinking about the the interplay of parenting with needing to control the relationship. Mm -hmm. When I was in a bad place, when I was keeping secrets, um, I was really controlling and it, partially because I was, I was like afraid of everything, you know, and I was that, that metaphor of closed fist. I was the walking example of that. I was judgmental to my wife, to my kids, could be harsh to them. And, and they weren't deserving of that. I just had a lot of fear and anxiety inside of me. And I think I was transposing that onto them. And then when I was able to just be honest about where I was and know that God forgave me, and realize that they might not be able to forgive me, I had to be okay with that. I couldn't control that. And I got better at releasing that control and giving that to God and saying, I might not be able to, I might end up a divorced man. I don't want to be, but I might end up that way. And the reality is, is that, you know, there are earthly implications for the decisions we make. I didn't want that to happen, but I had to be okay with going in that direction and then doing what I could to live a godly life. And I was able to let go of a lot of that controlling nature. In the process of that, my ego was being replaced, sort of washed away with the spirit of humility and just having to be okay with things being out of my control. And I, I think that that began to almost like a recipe. You know, I couldn't control what the members of my family were bringing to the recipe, but I could control what I was bringing to the recipe. And I was trying to bring less stress, less control more forgiveness, more understanding, and knowing that God was saying, hey, I'm doing that for you every day. 
you know, you're my son and I'm loving you because you're my son, not because you're being a good person and you can't do anything more or anything less to mess that up or make it better. I appreciated in the book how you contrasted being versus doing. Mm. And you write, if your being is aligned with your core values, then the doing takes care of itself. How does that play out in your situation? I don't think until that point in my life, I'd really thought a lot about what I most valued. I was really busy making to-do lists and trying to like hold 10 corks underwater at one time, <laughs> which no one can do. And when I got really clear about my values, I realized that the being is a, the values, the doing is how that manifests itself. And there were things in my life that simply weren't aligned. And when there's not an alignment, there'll be stress and exhaustion and frustration. When I got clear about that, it made it much more motivational, if you will. I was more motivated. I was more energized to say, I have to be a person of integrity. I have to be a person where this is aligned. If I'm going to say to my son, you need to be a person who's honest and has character and is you know, disciplined and kind, I needed to be that person too. Uh, there's nothing worse than someone who says, be this way, and they're not. And we see that in the news. We see that in the paper. We see that in social media where people say, you have to be this way, but they're not that way. And so there's no integrity there. And thus, you can't build trust in an environment like that. And it's a lot of work to remember what we need to do when it's not just flowing out of the core. Mm -hmm. The picture I have in my mind is as God pours in and really fills all that stuff from the inside, it just infiltrates and pushes out the stuff that is not of God in a way that I didn't have to remove it and leave a vacuum and figure out how to fill it. I mean, the scriptures tell us, you know, we need to be careful about what comes out of our heart. But people say, oh, I'm doing this because I just felt it so strongly in my heart. And I would say, you better be careful <laughs> because we are unaware of how, what kind of evil we hold inside of ourselves and how that manifests itself. What have you learned about God? Well, that's an easy question. <laughs> that's a really big question. Uh, I've, I've, learned that, I've learned that God is relentless in his steadfastness. I've learned that it's hard, it's almost impossible for a person to know more about God and to be more trusting in God without reading about God. And we read about God in his word to us. The Bible brings us every day. Um, his word brings us lessons, principles, stories that's so consistent and uh, such power. It's interesting. Another one of these Holy Spirit moments that happened 15 years ago was for Christmas. My parents gave me a one-year Bible. And that was at a time when I was deep in reflection about where my life was going as a dad and a husband. And I took that as a sign that I better you know, I'd learned a lot of scripture as a kid from Sunday school and that sort of thing. But I started reading that book from cover to cover, and I did it about five years in a row. And God's forgiveness taught me that while I still have shame at times about my past, I am intended to use that for good going forward. From here going forward, I use it all. I don't just use part of the recipe. I use all of the recipe. And I've found that that is giving other people permission to be vulnerable 
about their own stuff in their life between them and their son or family members. I think of this as what I refer to as the upside down world of God. When we are weak, God is strong. And he works through our weaknesses and our failures and those really hard parts of our lives in a way that brings life to it and brings redemption to it. I'm, I'm imagining there was a pivotal point as you got to the other side of healing, to this side of healing and restoration in your family where you, you and Jeff recognized that there might be something that would benefit others. How did that unfold and what resulted in Tender Lions? And this was probably a half a dozen years ago, was the moment when I was sitting at my desk at work and had read all those proposals and said, wow, this, this, is, a, this is such a dad issue. And by that time, Jeff was probably uh, 25 years old and was out of school and he was doing good work. He was actually working for the Illinois Department of Corrections in a juvenile prison at that time. And so I saw his impact on those young people and the type of leader he had become. And he could, even though he never was in jail, he could identify with those kids who had such dysfunction in their home. And I saw how he was growing as a leader in that. And we began to have conversations about, you know, this isn't a secret anymore. 30, 40, 50 of our friends know that our family went through a really hard time. And we don't need to be secretive about this. And as we start started to become more open about our own hard stuff, more people were coming to us and saying, oh, well, let me tell you. And so people start becoming vulnerable with us. I mean, my wife and I have both met with couples who are, my pastor started calling us and saying, would you guys meet with this couple? They're going through what you guys went through. And it, we're, we're realizing that in little bits and pieces, we could have a real ministry here. And we were only doing it one at a time. And we said, well, what if we, what if we wrote about this? Uh, I'm a little bit terrified to like tell the whole world that I was such a schmuck. On the other hand, maybe some other dad who's not playing the role he ought to, as God intended, will change his life and reconnect with his family or rebuild that relationship with his son. And so Jeff and I started talking about it on and off. And then about three years ago, we just we said, let's do this. And so we spent long days together just talking about if we could wind the clock back and raise a boy again, how would we do? We, we can't, but if we could... How would we do that? And we just started talking about what are these big topics about relationship and faith and money and sex and pornography and the culture. And that's how the chapters grew out of those conversations. So I'm going to cycle back to, uh, I'd mentioned this earlier, that uh, one chapter is titled Failure is Awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What might you share with someone who is going through a difficult circumstance right now? about the redeeming work of God? First, I would say, I'm sorry. I, I am sorry that you're going through this. It's hard. It's, there are days when it's desperate. You know, like you feel like you're face down on the basement floor. And I, I've been there. And it doesn't have to stay that way. The second thing I would say is that we, we can fall into a trap of, I mentioned Groundhog's Day before, you know, it's a funny movie, but the premise is really sobering. It's like your, your car is stuck in the mud and the wheels are just spinning in the mud, but all you're doing is looking at the wheel in the mud going, it's stuck, it's stuck, it's stuck. And we keep asking ourselves, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I think that's the wrong premise. We need to say, Lord, what's possible? 
So Lord, what's next? And then you look up what's possible and what's next. And you, you change your perspective from all this bad stuff in my past to what do I want my life to look like in the future? And more importantly, what does God want for me in the future? And when I was able to do that, it's like the weights just started falling off. Um, it takes time. The, the, the third place of this is don't expect this to be easy. You know, God doesn't promise that because we're honoring him that everything's going to be flowers and roses and we're going to be wealthy and be famous. I am a walking example of how many of our family days were sad and sometimes desperate. And most of our days, while still a roller coaster, most of our days as a family now are, are fulfilling, not happy. I'm not interested in happy. I'm interested in fulfillment, being good, being right by what God would want us to do. And out of that flows happiness and joy. Brian, through the book, now that the book is recently released, what could you see unfolding out of this book? Kind of yeah. what's next? There are several reasons why Jeff and I wrote the book. At the core, it wasn't that we wanted to sell a lot of books. Now that the book is there, obviously, we want the book to sell because we want the message. What we're much more interested in is impact between father and son, because we know that when the father gets healthier, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, that all of the relationships in the family will begin to become healthier. And when you have healthy relationships there, then the chance that your child is going to grow up to be a healthy, emotionally, spiritually, etc., is just it just multiplies. And you cannot have a strong society without strong families. More than anything, we're hoping that we nudge or inspire dads or parents to take the steps that are necessary to improve or restore the relationship with their son or their kids. We're already finding out that about as many women are buying the book <laughs> as men are buying the book, which is great. We're excited about that. But mostly we're, we want to see that the parent takes the lead the way that God intends to improve the relationship between them and their child. And it could be a 60-year-old dad and a 40-year-old child, okay? <laughs> and so the age is irrelevant because we know that when the father gets healthier emotionally, spiritually, relationally, that that changes the entire recipe in the family. And then those relationships improve, and then the kids become healthier. And you can't have a healthy society without healthy families. And we are hoping that we can create a, a movement of tender lions. You know, that title, tender lions, is, you know, I want my son to be to be tough and tender, strong and soft, sensitive and decisive. There's a real paradox there. You know, and to know when you need to be one and when to be the other. And in this day and age where people are so incredibly sensitive about, about male-female relationships or the Me Too movement or sexual harassment in the workplace, I would never want the strength of my son to be used in a way to coerce a woman in any type of negative way. Anything that would be a, feel, feel like a pressure to her to do something that would cause her to lose any type of respect or trust for him. But you use that strength and decisiveness that God has built into us to build and to create an environment that's life-giving, not life-taking. You detail some pretty significant statistics in the book yeah. about the importance or and it really threads back to those grant applications that you proposals that you were 
reviewing about the absence of fathers. Mm-hmm. Just talk about that a little bit. We know from U.S. Census Bureau research that 71% of high school dropouts have a poor relationship or no relationship with their dad. The same is true, 71% of teen pregnancies, 85% of children with behavioral disorders, 90% of homelessness and runaways in teens and children. Grades are affected, gang involvement, problems with alcohol, drugs, pornography, violence, depression, uh, cutting, imprisonment, even suicide. All of this is dramatically impacted by having no relationship or a poor relationship with the father. The mother relationship also matters, but the father relationship is the one that has all of this high risk factor associated with it. It's it's dramatic, and we don't talk about it uh, as you might talk about it like cancer or, you know, uh, mental illness of some kind. It's, uh, it's, it's a dramatic thing in our society. And to think about that, you know, uh, 25% of all boys don't live with their dad. And we know that in those other families, about half of those other dads are physically present, but emotionally checked out because of workaholism or their own emotional issues or narcissism or they're into pornography or gaming or whatever. So we have more than half. You look in any classroom today, you have more than half of all of those young men and women who don't have a good relationship with their dad. So they're having rite of passage moments with other junior high kids that they should be having with their dads, you know, learning about sex, learning about Mm -hmm. relationships, you know. So I don't want my junior high son learning about sex from some other junior high boy who's learning about it from porn sites, which has nothing to do with love and commitment and the tenderness that should be in a relationship. Brian, how can you envision different ways that people can use the book and the information it contains? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Tina. So I think there's several applications. One is just the the personal uh, information Um, on a personal level. I mean, uh, I've gotten a couple emails already. Even the book is relatively new. There are a couple Amazon reviews that said, hey, my a, a woman posted, my husband and I read this together and we're rethinking the way that we talk to our kids. So there's this individual person or a couple that are doing this in their own home, which is fabulous. That's that's what we love to see. Um, I, I got a message from another friend of mine who's a pastor up in the Twin Cities who said, we want to use this for a men's Bible study. Um, the book is written in a way, by the way, where there are questions at the end of each chapter, and then at the end, there's a study guide. So it's a it's a ready-to-go uh, Bible study or study con- conversation guide for for small group. Um, so we'd love to see that where they use it on their own. They don't need a leader's guide or Jeff or I'd be happy to, you know, facilitate those kinds of things. Uh, thirdly, uh, Jeff is really a, a, a good public speaker. Uh, he's good in front of a group. He, for his, his job is such that he's in front of large groups of people every day. He, he runs a basketball academy. So he's training and speaking all over the place regularly. And I've, I've done more than a thousand workshops in the last 25 years. So we're, we're really comfortable in front of a group and we'd love opportunities to do that sort of thing, whether it's workshopping or more like a keynote or something like that. We'd love to have that opportunity. That's wonderful. 
Brian, one of my hopes with these conversations is to encourage people who might be feeling those nudges from God to maybe open up their own lives in a way where they've got a story to tell that could help other people and express that in whatever way God might lead them to do that. Mm -hmm. If you could give a word of encouragement to someone sensing that who might be feeling timid about it, what encouragement would you give them? That's a, that's a great question because I can remember years ago feeling that nudge over and over again. And when I would feel the nudge, I would, it came with a twinge of, of like guilt, like, Oh no. But the reality is that should be an, Oh yes. It's that nudge is not coming from a dysfunctional family member. That nudge is not coming from the devil, the father of lies who wants you to stay stuck in that situation. That nudge is coming from the healthy part of you. That nudge is coming from some angel or the Holy Spirit who's saying, okay, I'm with you. We know change needs to happen in your life. It may not be easy, but it's possible. It's possible. So let's, you started it. <laughs> you started with three things this morning, Tina. Let's get honest. Let's get help and let's get humble. And regardless of whether it's the dad who's been the real perpetrator in the family or someone who's maybe in a really dangerous situation like a child or maybe a spouse who's maybe even being like in an abusive situation, I would still come back to those same three things. I would say, let's get honest. Find a safe place to get honest with someone. Get help from people who understand this situation. And then don't let your pride hold you back from doing this. Know that when you can become vulnerable about this, that people will open up to you and say, come on, you know, I've been down this road. I can help you go. I can help you with this situation. And God will honor that. And um, obviously, uh, I didn't say this, but prayer, 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 prayer in the middle of all this is, is vital to keep you connected uh, to a loving God. You talked about the importance of taking in the Word of God mm -hmm. and connecting that to prayer. Just the beauty of highlighting the importance of taking that in, because now that is so much a part of your thinking and conversation. And by knowing those words allows God to speak to us in the moment as we're living out our days. Brian, I want to thank you for one, your willingness to share your story in a way that is helpful to other people. Uh, I want to give thanks to God for what he has done in your life and in your family's life. And now what all of you are doing in the lives of other people, what, what a beautiful bringing beauty out of ashes kind of thing God does. Thank you in advance for the work that I know you will do through this story. Well, and thank you for your important leadership, for your ministry, for the good work you're doing at Faithful Innovations. Um, I'm just really grateful that uh, we have a mutual friend who connected us. And so it's great to be with you. So thank you. I can hardly imagine how difficult it was for Brian to take that courageous first step, to be honest with his family. There was a lot on the line. And as he said, it wasn't easy. There were many difficult conversations that had to transpire over time and a lot of personal work in the process. Faith, time, and the commitment of everyone to stay involved and continue the deep, hard conversations. Above all, the relentless grace of God enabled them to come through and be useful for God in a way that would have not been possible before. 
It's so incredible how God truly brings beauty out of ashes. If you'd like to connect with Brian, his website is tenderlions.org or by email info at tenderlions.org or through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram through Tender Lions Book. None of us make it through this life unscathed. Shame, fear, and denial can keep us with our hands clenched, which prevents us from experiencing the grace of God in our lives. We can't let go and we can't receive. Where might God be inviting you to get honest, get help, or get humble? Brian talked about the nudge of God that was prompting him to share his story. God may be nudging you too. If this is happening, he invites you to lean in. And if we can help, find us on our website at faithfulinnovation.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Faithful Innovation. Now make it a great day and find your unique way to share the love of God with the people you encounter. Bye for now.